Hello and welcome to COVIDcast, a Lowy Institute podcast for anyone interested in understanding the effect of the coronavirus on the world. My name is Richard McGregor and I'm a Senior Fellow for East Asia at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia. This is the first of three episodes on Chinese foreign policy, Wolf Warriors in the Age of COVID. I'll be speaking in this episode to Bilahari Kausakan, a former head of the Foreign Ministry in Singapore, who also served as his country's permanent representative at the United Nations. Known for speaking his mind, he is sometimes rather undiplomatically referred to as his country's undiplomatic diplomat. Thank you, Bilahari, for joining us. I want to start on this issue of Chinese strategy. One of the features of Chinese foreign policy at the moment is conflict. In other words, the difficult relations Beijing has not just with Washington, but with many countries, Canada, Australia, the UK, Scandinavian nations, and of course, India, where there's even been military conflict recently with the threat of more. Now, we often hear about what great strategists the Chinese are. Do you see a coherent strategy playing out here, or is this just the kind of clashes that are inevitably faced by a rising power? Well, first of all, I think uh, I have never quite bought into this trope of the Chinese being brilliant strategists all the time. Uh, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. And this is obviously one of those other times when they aren't. I think we have to understand that China almost always its main priorities are domestic. They are internal, not external. And the external serves the internal. And this is all the more so uh, because of COVID, because of um, the stresses that it has exposed and enhanced in Chinese society. You remember, Richard, uh, that uh, the domestic priorities of China's foreign policy were made quite explicit at the last party congress, the 19th congress. Uh, a lot of the Western commentary in particular focused on China's ambitions, uh, its global ambitions, its big ambitions. I didn't find that particularly interesting because a big country has big ambitions. You know, the converse would be unusual. Uh, but what was more important was, I think, Xi Jinping's redefinition of the principal contradiction facing China. And that he defined as the contradiction between uh, China's unbalanced and uh, inadequate development and the people's ever-growing needs for a better life. In other words, rising expectations and the huge domestic agenda that uh, arose from those rising expectations. And he made pretty clear that the Chinese Communist Party not only had a major role to play in this, that whether or not it would fulfill its goals would depend on them meeting those expectations. And that in the context of what happened at the previous party congress eight years ago in 2012, where they acknowledged quite openly that the growth model that took them through the 1990s and the early 2000s was not sustainable and they needed a new growth model. They had a plan for a new growth model, but they weren't quite able to implement it. Implementation has been patchy. It has been uh, two steps forward, one step back or one step sideways. And I think that the reason for this is quite straightforward and it's not an illogical one. China is a Leninist state. It's a communist country, not in its ideology anymore, because its ideology insofar as what it has one is uh, nationalism, but certainly in the structure of its political system. And the primary value of a Leninist state is control, political control. 
On the other hand, the new model, which they acknowledge themselves, needs more market efficiency. The market is the antithesis of control. The market means letting go. And they can't quite figure out a new balance. Now, these insecurities that result have all been enhanced by the slow growth of that is the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, the strategic competition that is ongoing with the US doesn't help either. So I don't see that they are great strategists. They have put together an anti-Chinese coalition far more effectively than anything that the United States have done. Uh, all the countries you mentioned, and you could add Southeast Asia too, although we are much more polite being nice Asians, we don't talk about it as much. Mm. Uh, all of us have concerns about different aspects of Chinese behavior. Not always the same concerns, not always held with the same in intensity, but that's what is driving this global concern about China. Yes, so I wanted to ask about that because the countries I listed at the top there, and I am going to come to Southeast Asia, most of them are, of course, Western nations. I don't want to, uh, you know, enlisting them, am I taking a Western-centric approach? Uh, you know, China has important growing ties with the Middle East, balancing Saudi Arabia and Iran. They've got Africa and Southeast Asia. Uh, do you think the concerns about China do go beyond the West? Yeah, I said, I think every country has got some concerns about China. Not always the same concerns, not always held with the same degree of intensity, but basically concerns about Chinese behavior. In the West, there is one particular factor, though. Uh, I don't know whether you want to uh, include Australia with the West, but for this purpose, I would include Australia. Uh, there was a peculiar illusion in the West, the United States, Europe, and maybe to some degree in Australia, that as China opened up and reformed its economy, it would also reform politically. Not, of course, becoming a carbon copy of uh, any Western political system. I don't think anybody was quite that delusional, but perhaps becoming like Japan or South Korea or Taiwan. And that, again, neglected the most salient fact about China. So obvious that it's almost invisible. It's a Leninist state. And reform in a Leninist state is always and everywhere where there are Leninist states left in order to bolster and preserve the position of the Leninist state, not to change it. Yes, I certainly think that's the case. And I would also argue, and I'm interested in your views on this, that Xi Jinping is not so much uh, a huge change from past Chinese leaders. He's more a sort of an acceleration of previous trends and the like. And of course, is also leading a country. Uh, which is much more powerful than the country that Hu Jintao took over in 2012. So in that respect, how do you see the political personality of Xi Jinping playing into these larger trends? Well, I think, and I'm guessing, all right, this is just an opinion. I think he is the Chinese system himself something of a black swan. I think he was chosen under somewhat unusual circumstances. You remember the whole thing with Bosilai and so on. Uh, to be a safe pair of hands. He's a princeling. The party is his patrimony. He was not expect he was expected to preserve it, but not to uh, change it too much. Well, they were quite wrong. Xi Jinping is not a Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong is a revolutionary romantic. He was even prepared to destroy the party if necessary. And he nearly did during the Cultural Revolution. 
But Xi Jinping is much more of an apparatchik. He is a systems man. But he has reintroduced by his concentration of power, by the insecurity that is instilled in the system at various levels through his anti-corruption campaign, something akin to a new Maoist single point of failure. In other words, everything leads to him. I'm not too sure how accurate information is passed up because passed upwards, but uh, he has reintroduced something like what existed during Mao Zedong's time, a single point of failure in the system. And that's not very healthy, not just for China, but for all of us, because we all have to live with China. You know? Yes, well, whether that's a sustainable system is probably something beyond our pay grade in today's podcast. But I guess coming back to the point you made earlier about the Chinese creating an anti-Chinese coalition, you know, the purpose of an anti-Chinese coalition can be many. There are uh, some very hardliners in all the countries which are critical of China. There are others who simply want to modify China's behavior. Uh, do you see this anti-Chinese coalition having any effect on Chinese behavior, uh, or is it too early to say? I think it's a little bit too early, but uh, there has been a little bit of effect, I think. Uh, some of the more egregious wolf warrior behavior has been toned down already, because it's clearly not working. It's counterproductive. It's against Chinese interests. You see what happened to Mr. Wang Yi when he went on his recent trip to Europe. If it was intended to win friends, well, uh, it didn't, okay? It just exposed some of the concerns that Europe, in common with many countries, does have about China. But they are uh, the Chinese system is an adaptable system. So it will learn, it will change. It's much more adaptable than, say, the Soviet Communist Party was. However, I think we do have to understand that some of the concerns that people have uh, do arise from the intrinsic nature of the system. Now, I don't mean by that uh, some of the more extreme views that have been expressed. I'll give you one example. Some of the complaints about a less than level economic playing field in China arise from the fact that you can't do business in China without having a relationship with the Communist Party of China. And the closer the relationship, the greater the advantage you have. And here, clearly, Chinese firms, whether state-owned or private, will have an advantage which others call a less-than-level playing field. But that's the nature of the system. It can be ameliorated, but it cannot be eliminated. So it's, about, it's really about uh, what exact behavior you are talking about. If you're talking about their territorial claims in the China Sea, South China Sea or East China Sea, I don't see them ever giving it up. They can go to a high state of... Uh, they can press them much more assertively at other times, but they cannot give them up because that is, again, related to the nationalist narrative of humiliation and rejuvenation under Communist Party leadership by which they justify their right to rule. So how can they give them up? Yeah, so I guess that's the point, isn't it? Because the system is adaptable, as you say. It's a learning system, but they can make tactical changes. But when you look at the territorial claims in the South China Sea, or perhaps more, even more importantly in Taiwan, yeah. that uh, cannot be changed without an explosion inside the Communist Party, inside China. So it seems that, you know, in the longer term, the, the West and China, maybe America and China particularly, are still set on a collision course of, of some kind? No, I don't, I don't think so. It doesn't follow. I think to some degree, rivalry, tension, 
competition certainly is inherent in any relationship in a system of sovereign states. It does not rule out engagement or cooperation. They both can coexist at the same time. Is what's the mixture? From 1972, when they you know uh, re-established contact, to somewhere around maybe 2008, 2009, there were periods of tension over Taiwan in particular, but overall the emphasis was on engagement. Now I think it's flipped. The overall emphasis is on competition, rivalry, but it does not rule out engagement or cooperation when their interests coincide. I think you know we. I don't believe that war by design is probable. In fact, it's so improbable you quite might as well rule it out. I really don't believe in these theories like the Thucydides trap and so on, which are too mechanical. There's one factor that we do not usually take into account when we think of Chinese foreign policy, U.S.-China relations, and yet it's a crucial factor, and that is nuclear deterrence. China is a nuclear power. Nuclear deterrence kept the peace between the Soviet Union and the U.S. for 40 over years, and I think it will keep the peace in the if you define peace as you know a war by design, right?、Uh, between China and the U.S. Accidents can happen. Accidents can happen,、uh, but I think they will move to contain it. As you mentioned, the most dangerous place for accident is the Taiwan Straits. But even there, even there, they、uh, some of their recent behavior、uh, has not been seen for some time. But it's less egregious than what they did in 1995, 1996. They haven't been shooting missiles over Taiwan for a long time. Thank God, right? So everything is relative.、Uh, I think a lot of the nationalistic behavior you see, you know, you know better than me,、uh, Richard. China is a country of contradictions. Diametrically opposed things can be simultaneously true, right? And it's simultaneously true that China is feeling very strong, and it's also simultaneously true China is feeling rather insecure. Yes, that is certainly the case.、Um, now you're, of course, in Singapore. Often ASEAN countries are linked,、uh, lumped in together, but as a diverse region, you have continental ASEAN, maritime ASEAN. All the countries have their own unique、uh, histories of relationships with China. Does it make sense to talk about ASEAN and China collectively, or is it going to be much more complicated than that going forward? I think it is in our interest to recognise both the complications as well as the common factors. Look, we are a region that is contiguous to China. Therefore, China is always going to have significant influence. Big country, contiguous. Of course, you're going to be significant influence, but by the same token, a big country is always going to evoke anxieties, anxieties which he has done very little to assuage, and in fact, in some aspects of his behaviour, have enhanced. So China is always going to be important to the ten ASEAN countries, but simultaneously is also going to evoke anxieties. Therefore, the ten ASEAN countries are never one. They never are going to do whatever they can not to be left alone with China. This is, as I keep saying, a naturally multipolar region. Why? Because it is a strategic crossroads. Because it's a strategic crossroads, more than one major power will always have important interests in this region. Not just the U.S., Japan, Korea, you know,、uh, some EU, Australia,、uh, and therefore the ASEAN countries will try. Will never. 
allow themselves to have an exclusive relationship with any single power. China is recognized as very important. It is not also particularly trusted. The same you can be said of the US. It's recognized as important, not particularly trusted. That's the common feature. And we should look at ASEAN as a matter of policy and strategy holistically. I tell you why. Because China's preferred way of dealing with any country, any region, is on a bilateral basis for obvious reasons, right? For example, I don't know, you. Uh, some of your listeners may not know this, but I'm sure you do. For example, the Declaration of Conduct on the South China Sea. Uh, as far as we are concerned in ASEAN, it's between ASEAN and China. Now, as a, uh, an agreement between ASEAN as a collectivity and China. China to this day uh, considers it as uh, an agreement between China and 10 individual countries. And that's their preferred way of playing the game. And I don't see why we should. And I don't see why ASEAN's friends should too. We should look as a matter of principle at the region collectively while recognizing, of course, that different countries don't have exactly the same interests with China, don't have exactly the same concerns with China. So let me ask you that uh, there's a couple of contiguous uh, uh, neighbours of China, Laos and Cambodia, which have particularly close relationship with Beijing, which, of course, some maybe loosely talk to as Chinese client states. Do you think countries like Laos and Cambodia see value in ASEAN because they will also want to hedge against China? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, they have a very close relationship with China, with China. They have a very dependent relationship with China, Laos and Cambodia I'm talking about. But it does not mean they don't have concerns about China. Uh, they do have concerns. There are two very good books. You may have heard of them by uh, Sebastian Strango and Murray Hebert. I'm sure you know both of them, about China and Southeast Asia, which uh, do a very good job about bringing out the complexity of attitudes, even in countries like Laos and Cambodia, which are highly dependent towards China. So I think it's everybody's interest to give them options. They don't may not have very much room to maneuver because of their contiguity, because of their economic independence, but that doesn't mean they have no room to maneuver. And we should do what we can to expand that room for them. But is that room uh, for not just Laos and Cambodia, but for ASEAN generally, particularly with the relative power balances between the US and China changing? Is that room to manoeuvre narrowing, or do you see a revitalization of ASEAN to make sure it's expanding or at least is available? Actually, I see the room for manoeuvre expanding, rather ironically, uh, because of the concerns that China has evoked not just in America, but in a range of countries. Japan is take, playing a different kind of role. Korea has its own concerns. Australia has its own concerns. So this is a naturally multipolar region. It gives us scope to maneuver. Now, whether we have the wit to, to see the scope and the agility to take advantage of it, that's an, entirely another matter. But in principle, there is room to maneuver. These choices uh, facing us are never entirely binary you can always make room. So that's a very interesting uh, point to come to a conclusion on, the issue of room to manoeuvre, choices that countries make. Australia has had a very rocky relationship with China um, uh, really for some years now, but particularly in recent months. You're a seasoned observer um, uh, of Australia, of China, of the region. What's your assessment of the Australia's management of its relationship with China and, frankly, vice versa? 
I think you in Australia have gone from a position of fairly extreme complacency about China and swung to a different extreme. But you will eventually come to a new equilibrium. Uh, not too long ago, I gave a talk to the uh, to ASPE in Canberra, and I did make a point which I shall make again. This dilemma between China as an economic partner and the US as a security partner can be overdone. Right? Again, it's one of these choices that are not necessarily binary. Because China is not buying your stuff because they like your face, you know. Uh, as good looking as you all are, as the people are. They're buying your stuff because they need your stuff. Your price is good. Your quality is good. You remember that, you will not get too excited about these binary choices. I don't think China has been de dealing with Australia particularly well either. Right? They thought that they had bought you. They don't quite understand that not everybody can be bought. <laughs> Or even if you are bought, you don't necessarily have to stay bought. <laughs> well, I'm pleased to hear that, that uh, from the view from Singapore is that Australia isn't still bought. <laughs> so uh, over time, you think this will settle down, even though in theory, uh, China's rise might give them even sort of, uh, they would think, more leverage in relations with countries like Australia? Well, of course, China is a big power. It's always not just with Southeast Asia going to have significant influence. But significant influence is not necessarily dominant influence, nor even exclusive influence. There will always be a multiplicity of powers here. You are an ally of the United States. I don't see the U.S. in retreat, by the way. Yeah? Uh, that's a, another liberal trope, which I don't see being borne out by the empirical evidence. So there will be always room to maneuver. The point is whether you have the wit to see it and the courage and agility to take it. <laughs> Well, look, let's finish on that note. Thanks again, Bilahari, for joining me from Singapore for this discussion on Chinese foreign policy. Well, thanks, Richard, for inviting me. And it's nice to see you, even if it's only virtually. Thank you. COVIDcast is a limited edition podcast from the Lowy Institute. Thanks to my colleague, Jennifer Reinhardt, for production assistance. Please keep an eye on our social media channels for details of the next episode of COVIDcast and you can stay up to date with all the latest developments on the coronavirus via the Lowy Institute's widely read digital magazine, The Interpreter. Thank you all for listening today and stay tuned for our next episodes on all sorts of topics, including on Chinese foreign policy.